You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on Westwood One's podcast network. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house on March 9th. It's Wednesday evening, and we are celebrating today our 200th episode. Gosh, it seems like it was just yesterday when we put out our 100th episode. And here it is. We've been together for basically two years. I think two years. What is it, Joe? Yeah, two years by now. Wow. Um, Joe Koss used to be my co-host here when we started out. Some of you real hardcore followers remember him. Um, Now he's busy with our social media, so we do this solo. And we picked up so many new people with Westwood One. And it's just been an honor. The comments, the feedback that I've gotten um, you know, many of you know me as one of the most prolific writers out there in this business, probably either on the right or the left. We cover many, many, many issues, agree or disagree with me. I don't do 140 characters. I don't do 280 characters on Twitter, although I am on Twitter a lot. Um, but we have long form articles delving into the important policies, outcomes, legislation, strategies, giving both the philosophical underpinnings of an issue, but also the very specific details of what is going on now, why it's important, why the conservative way um, is right for America, and what exactly conservatism means given the issues we face in 2018. But still, there's many things you can't do in writing. And I just love this platform where it's kind of almost like my blood pressure medication where we've been doing twice a week where I could just let off steam and update you on on what I'm working on. You know, most of you actually have real jobs for a living and don't have the time to focus on the nuances, but you know in your heart something is wrong with our political system. And I try to put the details into that and offer solutions, offer strategies. And one of the things about the conservative conscience is we're not just here to opine punditry and musings. It's all geared towards figuring out the truth and actually formulating policy, political, strategic solutions for where we should go. Um, As many of you know, I do a lot of work offline, um, not just trying to get my name in the news, but actually trying to craft policies, craft strategies, speak with people that might be able to influence policy and actually implement the ideas. So we actually believe in them here. And, you know, I've gotten so many good ideas over the years, and especially recent months, through a lot of the feedback, what I get from you all through Twitter or emails, and always feel free to email me. But, you know, what we tend to do with these shows is take the news of the day, and the news of the day is not necessarily what you're hearing in the conservative media, much less the liberal media. The important issues that we delve into on immigration and healthcare, the courts obviously has been a very, very much a pet peeve of mine since I wrote my book, Stolen Sovereignty. And 
you'll hear things that you won't hear elsewhere. I'll, I usually try to give over new things even to my audience, uh, the audience of my columns, you know, just the, the, the readership. Uh, a lot of you don't see my columns. Some of you see some of them. Some of you see all of them. But I want everyone to have new information, new ideas, um, a new zeal to go out and actually fight for our values. Or if you're not a conservative, and I know we we have some non-conservatives, I would hope that a thoughtful, long-form discussion on some of the issues uh, would actually open your eyes to some new new thoughts and ideas. And I, and I know I've definitely gotten some feedback from some of you on the role of the judiciary and, and just broad healthcare reforms, how, you know, I believe they're conservative, but they're also really just common sense and appeal to many people. And then also, you know, I'm, I'm not just looking to be a cheerleader in the stands. I believe we have a lot of problems in our country and they need to be addressed. And there's a lot of good ideas that are being left on the table. And we're going to look for candidates that actually are willing to champion these ideas. So that's, that's where, you know, the election side of this is going to come into play in 2018. And we started our Meet the Candidates segment. We got a tremendous amount of feedback from our third episode of Meet the Candidates with Nick Friedis, brilliant candidate running for Senate in Virginia. We, we, we were supposed to only do 25 minutes, and we wound up doing an hour and 15 minutes together. So you could look that up. That's, that's episode 199. If you haven't heard it, it's a must-hear, must-listen to. But now, we had last night our first primary. First indication of votes being cast, number of votes. And I want to analyze what happened and how that fits into the country in general, what we can learn from Texas, what we cannot learn from Texas, where Republicans had a better night than expected. Democrats seem to come up short. And again, even though Republicans and Democrats didn't go head to head because each one had their own respective primaries, but based on turnout numbers, you could at least you know, have some sort of objective measure to compare um, intensity on both sides. And certainly Democrats are very intense, but Republicans are matching that. Where where do we go from here? And how does that fit into the agenda going on in Congress? So I hope to get to all that. But first off, I figured we'd do something different today to celebrate our 200th episode by bringing on a special guest. You know, I can't believe it's been 200 episodes and I've never brought on Senator Ted Cruz yet, a man I consider a personal friend as well as a warrior for the cause of liberty. And like like everyone, we're going to disagree with some things. Um, but there really hasn't been anyone in the House or Senate this past generation who has fought on so many issues, not just as a vote, but as a voice, willing to go into the belly of the beast, challenge Democrats on the floor, challenge Mitch McConnell on the floor of the Senate, challenge media, fig- media figures, go and debate Bernie Sanders, be an articulate voice. You know, even when Cruz is kind of the quietest relative to most others, he's still fighting for us on issues like ethanol and immigration being the only one really holding the line on this DACA amnesty out of a hundred senators. So, there's certainly a lot to celebrate with his victory last night, which was certainly expected, but winning 85% of the vote 
was actually better than most <clears throat> most showings. <clears throat> John Cornyn in uh, 2014, when he had a primary, he got just 59% and almost half the votes, the raw vote totals that Ted Cruz got. So this was a big vote of confidence. So that's why I figured I'd bring on Ted Cruz today to briefly discuss the election and some, some of the important issues he's working on, and I'd love to get y'all's feedback. So with no further ado, we welcome Senator Ted Cruz to the conservative conscience for the very first time. Hey, Senator, it looks like last night you had a Texas barbecue and not a Brooklyn barbecue. <laughs> well, Daniel, it, it, it's good to be with you, and, and uh, last night was a terrific outcome. It really was encouraging to see Texas conservatives show up and show up in force. Uh, there's obviously a lot of enthusiasm in the national media that they want to turn Texas blue, uh, but I think a lot of conservatives showed up in big, big numbers yesterday and said, uh, not, not so fast, we're, we're not eager to jump off that cliff anytime soon. And that was certainly big news. Obviously, you're always going to win the primary, but you won it with 85 percent, um, almost double the vote total of the pre past winner of the GOP Senate primary in 2014. Um, but what a lot of conservatives are concerned about is, look, Texas is don't mess with Texas. You know, that is the conservative bastion. Um, we should always win there. Um, yes, conservatives were motivated because there's a strong slate of statewide candidates that the Republican base feels very strongly about there. But when you extrapolate nationwide, you see Republicans losing left and right in deep and red territory, state legislative seats. They're having trouble in House special elections, generic, generic ballot polling. Um, you look at the legislative agenda, and yeah. on one hand – it looks like Republicans are really under the gun for having possession of the ball. They control all three branches, so there's a very strong anti-vote, and we saw that even in Texas. But at the same time, there seems to be no narrative beyond the tax cuts, which they're not even making permanent now. Um, you know, I'm hearing with the omnibus bill, I'm hearing rumors of tacking on amnesty, gun control, now the internet sales tax, nothing about sanctuary cities, nothing about defunding Planned Parenthood. Um, I'm hearing about bailing out Obamacare. What exactly is the Senate going to do for the remainder of 2018 to have a narrative from which to run on in 50-50 states? Daniel, you're exactly right, and the frustration you're expressing is frustration that I have expressed vocally to my colleagues in the Republican conference, to our leadership, and indeed to the White House. If you look back in 2017, 2017 was a tremendous success because we were delivering on our promises. You know, At the beginning of the year, I laid out four big priorities for 2017, tax reform, regulatory reform, Obamacare and judges. For much of the year, it wasn't clear if we were going to be able to deliver on any of them. Republicans were infighting amongst ourselves and not coming together to do what we promised we would do. But when the year came to a close, we had managed to get our act together. We passed an historic tax cut that's already having a profoundly positive effect on the economy, including resulting in over 4 million Americans getting pay raises and bonuses. Uh, we have seen very significant regulatory reform that, that is unleashing small businesses and job creators and creating more jobs and higher wages and more opportunity. Obamacare is the biggest unfinished 
commitment uh, of this Congress. But it's worth noting that as a part of tax reform, we did repeal the Obamacare individual mandate, one of the most unfair and oppressive parts of Obamacare. I was proud to lead the fight to get that done. And, and, and it's, it is worth recognizing that that is a major, major conservative accomplishment. That, that In October, when I began urging it along with a handful of other conservatives, there were maybe a half dozen Republicans supporting us. And, and, and most of the conference said, look, we, did, we weren't able to get Obamacare done. Let's not muck up tax reform by bringing this into it. And, and we made the case both, both privately to the conference and more importantly publicly to the American people and moved the debate. And in December, all 52 Republicans voted to repeal the individual mandate. That's, that's meaningful and significant. And then number four on judges, judges have been an absolute home run. Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court is superb. And last year, we confirmed 12 Federal Court of Appeals judges, the most in the first year of a president's term in history. Obama had four. We confirmed 12. So 2017 was a success because we focused on our promises to the voters and we delivered on them. Now, your question is exactly right. 2018, uh, there is a real concern that Republican leadership has lost that focus, that, that you know, we're, we're in an election year. We've got in November, I, I think this election comes down to turnout, plain and simple. Who shows up at the polls? The left is going to show up. They're going to show up in huge numbers. They're energized. They're angry. The extreme left, they hate the president. And so the question of whether or not whether we have a good election or bad election in november comes down to the very simple binary question do conservatives show up in the polls and vote if that's the case we ought to be doing exactly the sorts of things you said we ought to be voting to make the individual tax cuts permanent we ought to be voting to make uh, the small business tax cuts permanent we ought to be voting to repeal or at least dramatically reform dodd frank we ought to be voting to pass kate's law we ought to be voting to defund Planned Parenthood, we ought to be winning major conservative victories that energize and empower conservatives and give conservatives a reason to vote. And if in the alternative, we don't do any of that, if the only major legislative initiatives that Congress passes in 2018 consist of a massive amnesty plan and gun control, that is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for depressing conservatives, keeping us home, and handing control of both houses to the Congress, to, to the Democrats. That doesn't make any sense. I hope we don't do it, and, and I can certainly assure you uh, that I'm doing everything I can to urge my colleagues to simply stay true to the promises we made and do what we promised the American people we would do. You know, in terms of systemic blockades on our agenda, there's two things I'm consistently hearing from a lot of conservative voters, and that is the 60-vote threshold and the courts. So starting with the 60-vote threshold, my question to you is, isn't there kind of a grim thought here? If we're going to not enforce the two-speech rule that our, our audience here is familiar with, that you could force a talking filibuster, but instead yep. create a de facto 60-vote threshold for literally everything – um, there's no plans to do budget reconciliation this year. So 
in fact, aren't we co-signing not just 2018, but even if we did an amazing job, bucked history, and won the midterm elections, we're never getting close to 60 seats. That's just not on the table. How are we going to pass a single major conservative priority when, in fact, modern-day Democrats, we know not a single one, will join us in those endeavors? Well, let, let me agree with you on two fronts. Uh, number one, when it comes to the filibuster, I, I, I think we are in new and uncharted territories. We're seeing unprecedented obstruction from the Democrats. We're seeing everything being filibustered. And, and, and I'll tell you, this is a question, the 60-vote threshold, on, on which I've changed my views. So two, three years ago, if you'd have asked me, should we change the filibuster rule and lower, lower the threshold from 60 votes to 50, I would have said no. And the reason I would have said no two, three years ago is, is that I think over time, over history, the filibuster rule has proven to be a conservative procedure. It slows down the growth of government, government the movement of government. You, you know, in modern times, we've had three Democratic supermajorities in the Senate. The first gave us the New Deal. The second gave us the Great Society. The third gave us Obamacare and Dodd-Frank. If we get rid of the filibuster rule, every Democratic majority is a Democratic supermajority. So, so why is it, Daniel, that I've changed? I've changed because of the unprecedented obstruction, and I've changed because I no longer believe Senate Democrats would be bound by the filibuster rule. I think the instant they get a majority, especially with a Democratic president, I think they'll end it in a heartbeat. And given that, it makes no sense whatsoever for it to be a one-way constraint for only Republicans to have a 60-vote threshold and not Democrats. Now, so, so I would vote to end the 60-vote threshold and the filibuster today. That being said, we don't have the votes in the conference to do that. Uh, I would say roughly half of the Republican conference, if not more, would vote against that proposition right now. So given that, the answer can't be, therefore, we will accomplish nothing. <laughs> if, if, well, well, for some people it can, but it shouldn't be. If you look at 2017, if you look at the victories we had, virtually every victory we had was done through a vehicle that took only 50 votes to pass, whether it was Congressional Review Act resolutions that overturned oppressive Obama regulations. Those only take 50 votes and can't be filibustered, whether it was judicial nominations including Supreme Court nominations, which post-nuclear option only take 50 votes and can't be filibustered, or whether it was reconciliation as the vehicle for passing historic tax cuts, for repealing the Obamacare individual mandate, and, and for passing the amendment I introduced to, to expand College 529 savings plans to include K-12 through education, public school, private school, religious school, parochial school, the most far-reaching school choice legislation in the history of the federal government. All of those passed through legislative vehicles that, that only require 50 votes. So what should the Republican conference be doing in 2018? We should be looking to what are the priorities we want to accomplish, and then what are the legislative vehicles we can take up that only take 50 votes and can't be filibustered. Right now, our leadership is not doing that. I, I'm doing my very best to, to convince my colleagues we need to keep delivering on our promises to turn conservatives out. And if we do that, 
I'm convinced we can grow our Senate majority, but if we don't, if we demoralize conservatives, we we run the risk of handing control of both houses over to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. It's amazing. You would think they would learn from the experience of the tax cuts the one time they utilized the 51-vote threshold. You could literally plot any measure of polling, Trump favorability, generic ballot, on a graph, and you see Democrats were way ahead, Republicans closed the gap after the tax cuts, and now they're they're losing ground again. And it just amazes me how they wouldn't want to repeat the only successful, um, really major legislative victory we've had. And that brings me to the next question. My audience will kill me if I don't ask you this. The courts have been a passion of mine. You mentioned sure. judges. And yes, it is true that on some measure, the president has appointed, successfully confirmed more judges in his first year than any recent president. Um, And he's done everything he can on that front. But at the same time, we've seen that the left has created a new system where they could shop to any radical district judge within the 4th, ninth, and D.C. circuits, among others, that even if Trump had two terms, you well know the demographics of those, the makeup of those courts, they're gone for a generation. They automatically win on appeal. It takes forever for the Supreme Court to even be willing to to take them up. It's a growing trend. You see that with Heller. Um, They're not reversing the lower courts. So we're stuck with the few things that Trump is trying to do executively that's completely lawful. You know, you got the 50, the 60 vote threshold in Congress, but Trump is doing some good things executively. It's transgender in the military. It's all sorts of immigration stuff. It's um, funding for Planned Parenthood. It's a contraception mandate. Put a nationwide injunction and done. And, And we're sitting here and just scratching our heads. Is there any effort in Congress to finally take back this squatter's rights from the courts and enact at least some judicial reform on the jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. on the rules related to the lower courts? Well, listen, as you know, Daniel, you're you're preaching to the choir. And and, and I have spent uh, virtually my entire adult life fighting uh, to combat judicial activism, to combat lawlessness from the courts. Uh, we have seen in recent decades courts usurping the roles of the democratically elected branches of government and, and, and asserting for themselves the authority to legislate and decree what the law of the land would be. Uh, why on earth would anyone want five unelected judges resolving every contentious social policy issue in the country. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, There are a lot of things we can and should be doing about it. One of the things we're doing is judicial nominations, and I've been very impressed overall with the caliber of of the president's judicial nominations and who we're getting confirmed. That that will make a real difference. Just the federal courts of appeals, the the, the 12 judges confirmed last year, that represents nearly 7% of the federal appellate judiciary. So we're making progress there. I think there's a very high likelihood we will see a second Supreme Court vacancy this summer. If that happens, that poses the potential 
to change the balance of power on the Supreme Court significantly. The last nomination, Neil Gorsuch, has proven to be very, very strong, but that was at best a defensive nomination. It was sure. replacing Justice Scalia. There was no world in which we were getting better than Justice Scalia, so at best we were maintaining the status quo. The next vacancy, if it's Justice Kennedy, if it's one of the liberals, that has the potential to dramatically improve the court, and it, and it may be that one of the aspects of improving it is that the court would, would be quicker to step in and correct lawlessness from the lower court. So that could make a real difference. Um, I agree with you. We've seen rogue judges uh, in the Trump administration imposing their own policies instead of following the law, whether that was judges in San Francisco and Hawaii striking down the so-called travel ban. And, and despite the fact that explicit federal statute gives the president very, very broad authority to exclude uh, illegal aliens, to exclude legal aliens if they pose a national security threat, if they undermine the safety and security of the country, and, and these district courts simply lawlessly, and the Ninth Circuit as well, lawlessly ignored that very broad federal statutory authority. Or most recently, and, and, and stunningly, uh, we've got two federal district courts on DACA. DACA, as you know, was President Obama issuing executive amnesty, which was utterly illegal, utterly constitutional. It was the president, like a king or emperor, decreeing, I will not follow federal immigration law, and I will not allow the federal government to follow federal immigration law. President Trump, rightly said that he would end DACA, that he would stop the practice of ignoring, of defying, of flouting federal immigration law. That was absolutely the right thing for the president to do, for President Trump to do. And two district courts have issued injunctions saying miraculously that it is illegal for the president to refuse to break the law. Now, now I think I'm a pretty good lawyer, but I'm not smart enough to come up with an argument that it's illegal for the president to obey the law. That, 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 that is a level of Escher-esque, folding on itself, legal backwards gymnastics that just doesn't make any sense. Um, yes, we should be using the tools we have to rein in that judicial activism and lawlessness. That includes tools the Constitution gives Congress, such as restricting the jurisdiction of the courts, and, and that includes ultimately the, the, the strongest check that Congress has, which is the power of impeachment. Uh, under the Constitution, judges serve not for life, but during good behavior. And if a judge is utterly defying the law and decreeing his or her policy preferences, in my view, that is not good behavior and should be subject to impeachment. So, so I agree with you that Congress should be reining in this judicial lawlessness that we're seeing. Well, we could certainly start with Judges Alsup, Garufus, Forrest. There's a whole bunch of them, and I think uh, you know there's there's definitely a big need for that. Uh, we're running out of time here. I want to let you go. Just one quick question before you leave. Talk about um, Obamacare. We got Obamacare of Energy, the mandate that fuel that oil refineries must blend ethanol in their fuel supply, and if they don't, they have to pay this ransom, these RINs credits. I don't yes. know anyone alive who wants ethanol in their tank. I don't understand this. Why are none of your colleagues, or very few of them, fighting against this mandate that is now putting 
oil refineries out of business, the very blue-collar jobs President Trump uh, promised to protect? Well, Daniel, you're exactly right. I actually, right before doing this interview, just 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 left a meeting with thirty some odd members of the United Steelworkers all all over the all over the country in Texas and all over the country who work at refineries whose jobs are 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 hanging in the balance, whose jobs are at risk, and they're at risk because this RIN system is broken. Now, now what is a RIN? Most of your listeners may not know immediately what a RIN is. RIN stands for Renewable Identification Number. It is essentially a license that was created by the EPA. And, And when RINs were first created, when the EPA first created them, everyone was told they would sell for one penny each or maybe two pennies each. And that was true initially. In the last couple of years, RINs have skyrocketed, though the RINs market broke. And so they went from one penny or two penny each to as high as a dollar forty each. Now, what does that mean as a practical matter? Well, two weeks ago, I was up in Philadelphia at the PES refinery. The PES refinery is the largest refinery on the East Coast. It has just declared bankruptcy because of the broken RIN system. In 2012, PES paid $10 million to buy their RINs. Last year, PES paid $218 million. That is more than double their payroll. No business can survive long if they're paying for regulatory licenses, artificial made-up EPA regulatory licenses that are more than double the cost of their payroll. And so PES has declared bankruptcy. We, We had a rally in Philadelphia with 1,200 union members standing, cheering, saying, we've got to end this burden that's destroying the jobs. And so what I've been fighting to do is get the administration to hear that concern and to arrive upon a win-win solution that lifts those burdens from the refineries and saves tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of jobs, and that also removes EPA barriers to corn farmers so that they can sell even more corn. That's a win for everybody. And i got to tell you, Daniel, I think we're close. I think we're moving towards a positive win-win solution. Absolutely. Opportunity for all, favoritism for none. Uh, level Indeed. the playing field. Uh, thank you so much for your generous time here, and uh, good luck on, on the campaign. We'll definitely be interested in having you back. Thank you, sir. God bless. And let me encourage all your listeners, come to tedcruz.org and, and sign up and stand with us. God bless. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. TedCruz.org. That was Senator Ted Cruz himself on the conservative conscience for the first time. And uh, let me tell you, I mean, while many members are in the witness protection program on so many issues, here is someone who's out in center. And I figured for a mature audience such as this one, um, I want to talk about things like the ethanol mandate, the RINs credits, because you really don't have enough members talking about this. Um, but w- we're going to cover this more in our next episode. We got a lot more on the Senate agenda. I'm going to go over some immigration stuff, the phony um, opioid programs that Congress wants to fund now without dealing with the source of the problem. We're going to delve into the Dodd-Frank legislation. Lots of good things going out, going on. Um, make CRTV, conservativereview.com, your one-stop shop. Thank you for joining me for our 200th episode. Really appreciate you guys sticking with us for so long. 
We're looking forward to another 200 more very soon. God bless you all. This has been another episode of Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.